Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. The FARC insurgency in Colombia has been raging for 50 years, and now, after a long peace process, it may soon be coming to a formal end. But even though a peace deal may be signed, whether or not that results in a meaningful improvement for the lives of people in rural Colombia is a key determinant of whether or not that peace can be sustained. That is the argument of my guest today, James Bargent, a freelance journalist in Colombia who has a piece in World Politics Review discussing the prospect of a peace dividend in poor rural outposts of Colombia, over which FARC has historically exerted a great deal of influence. We have a very interesting conversation about the history of this insurgency, the peace process, the challenge of coca eradication, and the complex relationship between impoverished farmers, FARC guerrillas, and the government. This episode is brought to you by World Politics Review, which provides uncompromising analysis of critical global trends to give policymakers, business people, and academics the context they need to have the confidence they want. The good people at World Politics Review are offering Global Dispatch's podcast listeners a two-week free trial and then a 50% discount on an annual subscription. To redeem this offer, go to about.worldpoliticsreview.com slash dispatches, and I'll also post a link to this on globaldispatchespodcast.com. And now here is my conversation with James Bargent. We caught up via Skype and you can hear some of the nice ambient noises of Medellin in the background. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. They have their origins in the rural corners of Colombia. There's never really been any sort of state presence at all. And they began what, as, a, as a Marxist-Leninist revolutionary group with the idea of overthrowing the Colombian state and dealing with issues such as equality and uh, land ownership in particular. Um, but they've been fighting for 50 years now. And um, what, what we've seen in that time is they still very much intellectually profess the same ideas, they still remain committed to uh, Marxist policies and socialist policies, but what we've also seen over that time is a corruption of those ideals as they've turned to various criminal revenue sources to fund this insurgency. Um, so they've got ever more deeply involved in the drug trade, they got heavily involved into kidnapping, although they've said they won't do that anymore. Uh, they're involved in extortion, illegal mining, and, and they, they also operate, as well as an insurgency group, as this criminal machine that, that earns hundreds of millions of dollars every year. 
So they still profess to have these socialist ideas, and without a doubt, there are many of them are, are still very, very committed to that. Um, but in other parts of the country, what you'll find is the FARC have degenerated into uh, a criminal organization sort of hiding behind this ideology. So over the last few years, there's been a, a pretty robust attempt at, at a peace, uh, peace between the government and FARC rebels. What gave rise to this peace process? Well, I think to understand the current peace process, you have to go back to the turn of the century and the last failed peace process. In the last failed peace process, which started around 98, 99, uh, the FARC were hugely powerful. They had an estimated 16,000 guerrillas, not to mention like militias and support networks and all the rest. And they occupied about a third of the national territory. Now that's obviously very rural, isolated area, so it's nowhere near a third of the population, but still, it's, it's, they had a huge territorial presence. And they used, well, those peace talks went down in bad faith on both sides. Both sides were sort of committing flagrant violations. The FARC uh, used the peace process to uh, secure themselves territorially and build up their strength and came out of it when it, when it finally ended as even more powerful. So that brought in a, a new era of full-on war against them, a huge military assault um, by President Alvaro Uribe, backed with billions of dollars of uh, US money from uh, what we call Plan Colombia. Yes. And it was, it was a very controversial assault because there was huge human rights abuses, uh, allegations of all sorts of things against the army, the army also used paramilitary groups to basically do their dirty work and commit horrific abuses and they covered that up and concealed it but it was largely successful they managed to break the back of the FARC as a territorial army and reduce the number of guerrillas in their ranks by an estimated half so it's 8,000 but what you got then is that reached the end point of as far as it could go. What you saw is the FARC regrouped, they changed tactics, they reverted to um, guerrilla tactics of hit and runs and ambushes mm -hmm. and uh, started patrolling instead of being in huge groups that were, were more like a standing army. They went back to uh, being small cells of guerrillas running around the country causing havoc. Is that sort of um, typical, though, of, of like peace agreements, right? Like when you, you like the more extreme factions tend to be rejectionist of, of peace agreements and tend to get more extreme. Um, yeah, I mean, I can get onto that on this one. There's definitely an element of that in a moment. Um, and what I was talking about there, though, is like the, the basically the idea of peace was abandoned for about a decade. There was this huge military assault, severely weakened fart. But then the FARC regrouped, changed tactics, and by about 2008, they were being more aggressive again. There was more and more attacks. And so we reached this point where it's essentially a stalemate. The government had broken the back of the FARC to the point where they no longer had a realistic proposition of overthrowing the state. But at the same time, the FARC had regrouped and had proven that the military didn't have a realistic proposition of defeating the guerrillas militarily. So with this stalemate, it pushed the two sides towards negotiating. And then there's um, like short-term factors as well. 
were very much that the government has had recorded unprecedented success in the years before the talk started in targeting FARC leaders. They had better intelligence, they were launching airstrikes, and for the first time they were killing their top people. So they were keen to negotiate to avoid getting killed in the airstrike. And then the FARC had, looked, had um, started these tactics of um, targeting economic infrastructure, which Colombia is you know, rebuilding its reputation in the international community and trying to attract foreign investment. So that was a really smart tactic for them. It hit the government where they hurt. So we've got these longer-term factors of kind of fighting each other to a stalemate and then these shorter-term factors that brought them to the table to talk. Basically. So what are the parameters of the current peace talks? What, what's being negotiated? What's on the table? What do both sides hope to, to get from this? Well, uh, the main points of the agenda are rural reform, which is you know, still the, the FARC's sort of key political policy is to change the countryside which is you know, suffers extreme inequality, extreme poverty and has largely been abandoned by the state. So the first one was on rural reform. Um, there was an agreement on political participation which is another huge one because Colombia has a very bloody history of ruthlessly persecuting anyone with any sort of leftist ideas. So people that weren't involved in the insurgency frequently still to this day will get murdered just for basically standing up to um, to powerful economic interest and espousing any sort of leftist ideas. So the second one was political participation to try and guarantee that if the FARC turn in their arms they could peacefully put, uh, participate in politics without security threats. Which is um, pretty but, typical, right? Like an insurgency becomes a political party. Uh, oh, that's kind absolutely. of how it ends, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that certainly would be, you'd expect the FARC to launch some sort of political movement, if not a party, definitely. And then there was uh, the drug trade, because obviously the FARC are heavily involved in the drug trade, mostly in coca production. So they, they have a, almost monopoly in their areas on coca production, where the farmers, you know, they work independently, but they have to pay their share to the FARC, and in return the FARC protects them. So from one point, they've got this is an opportunity for the Colombian government to deal with directly with one of the major actors in the cocaine trade. And then from the FARC's point of view, they say that the rural communities that are involved in drug production, specifically like coca cultivation, are again these poor, abandoned um, regions where they need help. They need help to join the legal economy. So that was that point. Then we're still talking about the victims and what will happen in terms of reparation and truth commissions. And then also the, the final points to agree are basically um, ending the conflict. So we'll be talking about issues such as transitional justice, you know, finding the balance between people paying for what they've done, but obviously no one's just going to leave the, leave the war behind and walk straight into a prison cell for the rest of their lives and uh, how to demobilize the fighters and that sort of thing. So that's, they're the main points in the agenda. So in, in your piece in World Politics Review, uh, you argue that if this peace agreement is going to take hold, its success or failure will really result on how well it's implemented in a place like Catatumbo. Can you describe Catatumbo and, and why you think it's sort of ground zero for the ability of this peace agreement to really come to fruition? Sure. Yeah. Uh, well, first, I'll just explain. I mean, there's, there's what people in Colombia refer to as positive peace and negative peace. 
So signing an agreement would be what they call a negative piece, as in an absence of war. So that, that's likely going to happen one way or another. But what people mean about positive peace is addressing the conditions that created that war. And that's where a lot of doubts remain. So if you go to Katatumbo, um, the roads there are absolutely abysmal. It's very, very isolated from the rest of the country. Uh, there is a huge amount of coca cultivation. Uh, there's t really bad issues with poverty and a lack of public services. Things that are just basic things like electricity and sewage, they just don't reach a lot of places. And then you've got the role of the state. The state there is the only state presence you really see in these areas is military roadblocks of young soldiers squatted behind sandbags, uh, staring nervously at the road. In terms of like provision of services, education, health, that sort of thing, the state's largely absent. And so the guerrillas have filled this vacuum. Then it's not like they're out in the open, but everyone in those areas, they know who the guerrillas are and they know they have to go through them to do any sort of community projects. And in return, they, they, you know, the guerrillas act as almost a de facto state, a sort of shadow state to the real one. And then there's also the fact that people there don't trust the state. What you have is, I think the way I think of it is, uh, for most Colombians, this war is the state versus a guerrilla insurgency. And they may be very critical of the state, they may not like the state, they may be horrified by some of the abuses it does, but on the, at the end of the day they recognise that the state represents them, the insurgents represent people that want to overthrow that. For people in areas like Catatumbo, that's turned completely on its head. For them, what the war is, is they have this de facto state, which are the guerrillas, and then they have this outside invading force, which is the, the army and their paramilitary cohorts. So the only experience they have of the actual Colombian state is people bombing them, invading their territories, disappearing their people, sending paramilitaries in to massacre them, and then every now and again maybe negotiating some agreements which they very rarely follow through on. So you have a huge, for the people there, they live in this, this, a lot of poverty, they depend on illegal economies, and they see the state as something, at worst, an enemy, at best, an unreliable, untrustworthy partner. The, the relationship between the FARC and, and the campesinos, the, the sort of peasant farmers in, in the region, are... It seems just like very complex and almost symbiotic in a way. Um, mm. and, and how do you then sort of break that symbiosis? I mean, it is hugely complex. Um, and there's always a danger because the government especially has a tendency to stigmatize them, just to say they're like guerrilla stooges and use them that as an excuse to lock up community leaders or they get targeted for paramilitary violence and the paramilitaries to say, ah, oh, they were a guerrilla, but in real reality they were community leaders just campaigning for better, better conditions. Um, but obviously if you live in these areas, you have to have contact with the guerrillas. So whether that's by obligation or by choice, because ideologically they, they, they share a platform of the guerrillas. Basically they're calling for the same thing. They're calling for rural reform. They're calling for public investments to reduce inequality and poverty. So they do share an ideological platform. Um, to, sort of, to break the, 
the, the symbiosis. Oh, sorry, but I would also like to emphasize again that even if they don't share an ideological platform, even if they are horrified by the guerrillas and what they've done, they still have to have contact with them because, you know, like anyone who may be horrified by the state, you still have to work with the state. Um, so in terms of, sort of breaking that relationship, the biggest thing, I think there's two aspects. The biggest thing will be rebuilding the trust between the state and the campesinos, showing them that these aren't just empty promises, that they are going to deliver. Because if you listen to the campesinos, what they're asking for is that the state comes into their area. They're not trying to reject it. They want the state to come in and to provide better roads and health and education. So the government needs to rebuild the trust by, by listening to them and to actually following through on the promises it makes. And then the other side will be uh, facilitating the, the political participation of the guerrillas. It's, it's, it's going to be crucial to, to convince them that leaving your arms behind was the right thing to do, to show them that they, they can have political agency peacefully, that they can make a difference. So in that sense, they, will, they, they may well be very useful in these areas as almost a, a bridge between the state and the campesinos. The idea, in an ideal world, what you would have is you would have the FARC's political movement working with the campesinos and with the government to solve these rural problems. Um, obviously, there are huge challenges to, to implementing that and making it a reality. And, and what role does coca crop substitution play in this equation? And, and what sort of challenges have the local communities faced in trying to move beyond coca cultivation? Coca cultivation will be critical in these areas where it's a problem for the simple reason that the, these are just generally poor farmers, but they are completely dependent on an illegal economy, um, which at the moment is protected by the guerrillas. Now, if they can convince them and they can show them and they can carry out programs to substitute, the, substitute these crops, then you'll be bringing a large um, proportion of the population that's been abandoned and lives in poverty into the legal economy. You'll be undermining the drug trade and you'll be taking away a huge source of criminal resources. If it's done badly, what you're going to do is you're going to be pushing these farmers away from you know, the guerrillas for, for all the abuses that they've committed. They still have a sense of social responsibility on some level. Whereas what you'd be then doing is pushing these farmers further into illegality, into the hands of groups that will be looking to co-opt these criminal resources and fill the vacuum left by the FARC, who have no, no interest in anything but as much money as possible. Um, so to, to, to what you're saying about how you make it work, the problem is in the past these there have been numerous crop substitution programs in Colombia in the past and they've mostly failed pretty spectacularly. And the problem is generally they, 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 come, they don't plan them properly, they come into an area without talking to the peasants, they offer them like start-up loans and say, right, you're going to grow cacao or you're going to grow coffee. And then they don't look at whether it's appropriate for the region, they don't look at whether the people there have the expertise, they don't look at whether they can get it to market. A lot of these places are very isolated and the transport means it's just not profitable. And then you need, obviously if you're starting a new business, any new business, you need something of a cushion. But what you've got is these, these campesinos who've been convinced to take out startup loans, 
and then maybe there's a market crash or there's a plague on the plants that wipes out their crops and all of a sudden they're left with absolutely nothing except debts and the banks come in for their land which is what little they have so in those circumstances what do they do? They go back to what they know, they go back to what's reliable and profitable which is cocoa so to break this cycle of illegal economies it will be absolutely critical that they implement these substitution programs are a lot better than they have done in the past. So I get the impression that you are fairly optimistic that an actual, like a peace agreement will be signed between the FARC and the government. Um, but how um, optimistic or are you that the actual positive peace that you described will take hold? Yeah, I think, I mean, the recent months the peace process has been a bit rocky, but I still think both sides have invested so much in this that are not going to walk away easily. And I do believe it's, it's very likely that the final agreement will be signed. In terms of the positive peace, in terms of what they're promising in these uh, agreements, I am very sceptical that they have the capacity to carry this out. This involves huge amounts of money, but it also involves managerial and technical capacity that I'm not sure they have to do everywhere at once. So, and there's also external factors like um, what the demobilizing FARC will do. There is a lot of young lads in the FARC, and women as well, that don't know anything but war, and they have no education, and they, have, they know nothing except combat. And they are very likely, there's going to be a significant proportion of them that do not demobilize and in fact criminalize. And so it will be hard to implement all these grand schemes if you're in an area that's run by ex-FARC now operating as a criminal group. So I think um, you, you have to sort of try and stay optimistic that some of this will come to fruition, that conditions will improve, that these will be a step towards what they've promised. But anyone that believes uh, that it will be fairly straightforward and fairly quick to even even within ten years to carry out these things that they've promised is uh, a bit naive. So, hopefully, some of this will come to fruition. We will see improvements in these areas. The Colombian state can begin to reclaim these forgotten corners. But will it look like anything like they're promising? I, I very much doubt that. Uh, well, James, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, no problem at all. All right. Well, thank you all for listening. Thanks to James. Thanks to the good people at World Politics Review. And remember, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com and I'll post a link to the special offer that they are offering you, dear listener, to subscribe to WPR. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives. I post uh, one of these kind of short topical interviews every Thursday. And every Monday, I post longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders, luminaries who discuss their life and career with a special emphasis on how they came to their worldview. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye.